Okay, hi Paige, welcome to the podcast, nice to finally meet you. <laughs> Thanks for <laughs> Um So, you know, I think just for the people listening, um, we haven't met before and I recently got in contact with you over email because um, I'm always interested to talk to people who are just very honest with the way they experience things and uh, a lot of this podcast um is a lot is about that is kind of people's journey with yoga and spirituality and i'm always interested to talk to people who are honest and critical as well and i really enjoyed listening to some of your videos i found on youtube and i found some other you know some of your asana breakdowns as well i thought were really nice and i thought you understand the body very well and i know you to be a sort of seasoned long-term ashtanga practitioner um so, you know, specifically one of your videos around, um, I'm not sure what the actual name of the video was now, but around potentially stopping Ashtanga yoga or stopping practice and your thoughts around the Ashtanga community and the way the system is kind of being taught these days and just your thoughts and feelings around that, I, I found very refreshing actually. And uh, like I say, very honest and critical and um I thought you'd be a very interesting person to talk to about this. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> um, I guess the first thing I would like to know is just kind of what got you into yoga a little bit, what got you into Ashtanga, I guess. I, I know you started quite young. Yeah, I stumbled upon a yoga class at a gym. Yeah. And that was kind of it. Like I, I decided to try it out. It was just a basic Hatha yoga class. Mm. and. I I was hooked from day one. And so I started researching studios in the area because I wanted to take it more seriously. And there was a woman who taught at a studio. She was from New York. Mm. And she taught vinyasa. But as soon as she met me, she said, you would love Ashtanga. Mm. So she was the one that kind of directed me. And she gave me a video of Guruji teaching all of the seasoned, like really seasoned teachers at this point, <laughs> um, you know, the old uh, video yeah. that was taught at Yoga Works with Mati and Chuck, yeah. and Richard and Tim. And and so I would practice it, just, just try to follow that video in my bedroom. And that was mm. kind of like the start. Yeah. So you started just with a self-practice at home on your own kind of thing. Yeah, and I mean, I've always been pretty much a self-led individual, and uh, mm. but yeah, I had the carpet on the floor and um, <laughs> a VHS tape. I mean, that's how, like, <laughs> that's how old I, how long ago that was. But <laughs> yeah, how long did you do that for? Gosh, probably. Let's see, at least a year. I think it was. 99 or 2000 when I finally came across a yoga studio that had just opened and she was teaching, um, hmm. not my sore, but she was teaching at least lead primary out of yeah. her studio. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you jumped into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I guess it kind of the bug kind of caught you with it and you, you know. Yeah. You know, and I, and I stress this, like I graduated high school at 16, I started yoga at 16, mm. and I was struggling with some 
like eating disorder stuff and some image stuff. And I think yoga, like I, I never would have been someone who got into drugs. I just, I'm too vain and drugs <laughs> kind of like making me not feel so good. Um, yeah. But because when you're a teenager and you're kind of struggling with those things, like mm. a lot of kids will go to the extremes and not do healthy things for a few years. I think yoga really saved me from taking that path. Really? Yeah. So what, what do you think it was about yoga that kind of, because I, I've definitely met people I could potentially say might have an issue with food who maybe the practice can actually not not help that in some ways maybe that can kind of become another sort of control mechanism i'm interested sort of how how you felt that kind of helped you because i remember specifically having the thought if i can't love myself for how i look i can love my body for what it can do yeah and, and so you know i was i was realizing just its full potential mm. and so and that really softened a lot of the inner hardness that I had yeah. and helped me to heal big time. So you kind of, you got a lot of strength and sort of um, self-love from what you could do within the physical practice like that, yeah? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Mm. yeah it's interesting because I've definitely met people that I felt that um, potentially had an issue or I don't know how the best way to word it, but um didn't have the best relationship with food and exercise and I kind of felt that maybe and I've definitely met people where I felt like maybe their intention with yoga is is not so much self-love but maybe another sort of form of punishment or another sort of way of um controlling something in their life and I think that's a tricky one isn't it to sort of navigate because I think that maybe that without the intention of sort of self-love or something positive it could potentially be something something negative and I've definitely witnessed that in <laughs> in some yeah. practitioners yeah well I I developed my eating disorder in junior high and it kind of backfired on me so I that's how I got into the yoga practice I I realized I'm like okay trying to control myself trying to control my body is actually mm. backfiring on me so I'm gonna mm. kind of put that down I don't want things to get worse and I just decided to listen to my body's inner wisdom and intuition and because I didn't want things to get worse I didn't want bad results <laughs> right you know but some people are able to kind of ride that wave a little longer yeah and lean into that control and it's really sad because yeah a lot of people get into the practice like you know and even as a coach so I kind of study a lot of um patterns and and mm. A lot of practitioners who get into yoga, it's not a whole lot different than why they would like become Christian or something. Like they, after mm. an addiction, mm. they, they, they need something to obsess over. And yeah. if you really are honest, that's what's happening is they just replace their obsessions. Yes. Obviously, it's a healthier one, but they don't, the, the black and white thinking doesn't really shift. And you'll notice, and I and I worked with um, a therapist for a long time, and she would say people who are addicted have black and white thinking. There's mm. no nuance. There's no gray. You have to do it this way or that way, and that's it. Mm. And you'll see this in a lot of practitioners in the sense that they, they hold the line so strongly, and they shame anyone who doesn't. Because if, mm. if, you, if you live outside the line, that means that something's wrong, and you can't 
test or question what they're doing because they can't handle that. They need to know that this is the only way. And um, and it's interesting. Like I said, you'll see this not just with Ashtanga practitioners. You'll see this with like former addicts that become Christian, and now they proselytize the, the the Bible, and mm. it's very very similar pattern patternings, you know. And um, people need boundaries. They need lines. They need to know where to lean. They need to know how far they can go. And and again, if anyone lives outside of those parameters, there's there's a lot of judgment. Yeah. And um, I think that's why, because they're just replacing an obsession. They're not really doing the inner work. Yeah. I think this, this is definitely something I wanted to talk to you about, because this is something you spoke about very openly and honestly in that video I'm thinking of. And uh, maybe we're jumping ahead a little bit, but it's probably cool. I mean, is that something that you kind of found within the Ashtanga community then, was that kind of mindset? or? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I was. What's interesting, and I've 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 had a lot of discussions with like Prem Carlisi about this. I've become good friends with him, and I spent time in, in Bali at his. Mm. And he said, you know, the practice was designed for outliers. It was designed to to create liberation on a spiritual level, but people have taken it, and it's become a dogma. Mm. And uh, yeah, I agree. Like it was, it was really meant for someone to just kind of go and explore their own path. But again, people who don't know how to give themselves that personal freedom will create just a dogma out of it. And, you know, if you, if the difference between religion and spirituality is one is dogma-based, one is total liberation, right? Mm. And which I think is really fascinating. And yet you have these people who are like, no, 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 no. Like, you have to practice six days a week and you have to observe moon days and you have to, like, all these rules, you know, yeah. instead of just testing one's own inner boundaries and going, okay, what's right for me? Mm. As a teacher, I was really like I had, I attracted the outliers a lot of the time um, yeah. by default, and people who wanted permission to breathe, to be themselves, to do things a little differently. Um, I also attracted a lot of people who were just like, "You have it figured out, okay? Teach me how to do that." Um, mm. But you know, as someone who's just a natural outlier. I did, I did luckily attract a lot of students that were like me and it was important that in my teaching that I did never was like, no, don't follow me. I don't want you to follow me. I want you to just learn how to follow yourself. Yeah. I think that's always been my impression of a good, my sort of teacher is that in a way it's not a very good business model, is it? Because you're kind of trying to teach people to kind of be self-reliant and not to follow you in a sense, you know. Mm-hmm. But did did you, I assumed you kind of went down that road of six days a week, no moon days, and, you know, kind of explored that whole area for a, some time, or was it always from the beginning you were sort of hesitant about that? I think because I didn't have the structure when I started, I never yielded to it when it was available. Mm. Because there wasn't a Mysore place to practice when I started. I mean, I started, I I didn't know all the other stuff because I didn't have a teacher. I was just trying to do the practice. (laughs) Um, You know, and and so kind of the same, like I was raised a Mormon, so it was kind of the same like with church. It was like, Mm -hmm. I knew what the rules were, Mm -hmm. but I didn't care. (laughs) 
So you, you know? were kind of hesitant about that from the from the get go. You were kind of like, I'm not too sure about this, and skeptical. Or... Well, I've never been. Again, Mormons have a prophet, a living prophet, and I was like, whatever. Yeah. Like, but <laughs> I dreamed psychically. What makes him so special? Um, and <clears throat> and I never, I never worshipped Guruji. I never worshipped Sharat. You know, I think that's incredibly dangerous to worship a human being. And especially, like, over time, I really was like, yeah, don't worship humans because we're all, you know, uh, capable of falling off our pedestals. So don't do that. You'll just be disappointed. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I um, I grew up in a sort of family and environment that was always a little bit suspicious and critical of stuff, and especially um, sort of mass thinking. So... Uh, I think it's in my nature to be that way and to sort of question authority. So for me, that was, it's always sort of been there really, is that sort of feeling in me to, to be, um, yeah, just questionable, critical and kind of not trust everything that I'm being told, you know, kind of take things with a pinch of salt and to try to look at things from all angles. But I guess in Indian religion, the kind of worship sort of um, culture is, is very much part of their part of their culture isn't it especially within hinduism yeah no for sure it's 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 unfortunately it's popular mm. in a lot of in a lot of places in this world um you know and i and i sometimes will bring up the fact that like i i did not have a good relationship with my mother growing up and I like if you look at family dynamics, oftentimes if there's a narcissistic parent, you'll have like the golden child, the scapegoat. You know, yeah. I was the, I was the scapegoat. Yeah, same. <laughs> yeah, but when you're the scapegoat, oftentimes you grow up and you turn into a liar. <laughs> uh, you have if you if 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 you're what I tell people is if I'm going to be hated anyway or I'm going to be blamed anyway, then I'm just going to do like you're going to blame yeah. me. I'm fine. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. I grew up the same, yeah, in that kind of dynamic, yeah. Mm. But, um, yeah, it's interesting, actually. I think that's another thing that kind of makes you a little bit more, um, what's the word? Questionable. You question things probably a little bit more, yeah. Mm. But did you did you ever kind of, I take it you used to practice with Sharat in Mysore and Guruji and you've been there and done that and whatnot. Do you know, I've actually never practiced in Mysore. No. No. When by the time I was old enough and able and had the freedom to do it, Guruji had passed and I never mm. really had the desire to yeah. go rot. I had questioned it a little bit when he first kind of took over. And I don't know. I just I wasn't into it. In hindsight, I don't regret it though. I no. really I did go to India and I got very sick and <laughs> just like you know, I Spare me, I don't need to go back. Uh, <laughs> Those body types that if there's something weird, I'm gonna catch it. Um <laughs> so I don't I don't regret that part. But yeah, it was because Guruji passed away in two thousand eight, mm -hmm. right? Eight or nine. Mm -hmm. And I I didn't even graduate college till two thousand five. And of course my parents weren't gonna let me go and mm -hmm. I didn't have the resources on my own until a few years later. And like I said, by the time it was like really viable Guruji had passed and I just didn't have the interest um I was dating another Ashtangi who eventually did become authorized and he really tried to push me to but I just mm. I never got on the Sharat train no you never felt that sort of desire to sort of go and down that road 
Yeah. And like I said, I'm th- I think I'm glad because I, I really don't have the personality to just shut up and mm. just do. And I think if I'd gone to Mysore, that would have been the environment. Mm. I'm also not like fanatical. And I guess in Mysore, everyone is kind of fanatical. And I just don't know that I would have handled it well for a month or two. <laughs> So. Yeah, I, I'm a bit the same actually. I, uh, you know, my original teacher and plenty of people I've met who've been, but I, I never felt that natural draw to go. It, it wasn't really there for me, and I never really, I've never met Surat, but from what I hear, I never really found it inspiring. I never really felt that sort of need to kind of go and put myself in that sort of environment, really. But I kind of felt like if that need ever come up, came up, I would sort of follow it. But it's always I always sort of do things intuitively, really. So it's not sort of, it would have to feel right. You know, it'd have to be like a feeling that was there. I did both of them. I've met both of them. I mean, I have, um, when when Guruji came in 2002, I was there in Los Angeles. Yeah. And Sharat, like three times when he came Mm. to LA, I, I practiced with him. But that was good enough for me. It's good enough for you, yeah. You did so. You know, is that the feeling you have? Is that in a way? Because I know this was something I took from your the talk you had, and that maybe you felt like the system, which is an intelligent system, but in a way has become a little bit too rigid and dogmatic. Well, one hundred percent, and it's the cash cow. I mean, Schrott really turned it into a cash cow. And What, what do you mean by that? A cash cow, like, it's just a way to milk money out of people. No, no, I, I know what you mean by the term cash cow, but I mean, like, like, you, do you think that's like an intentional thing that's going down in, in that way? Or? Oh, 100%. Okay. What, 100%. What? And it's just, again, I mean, I'm, I'm a free market capitalist and nothing wrong with making money, but, yeah. but it's so blatantly obvious and kind of, you know, I have a, I have a colleague, a friend who, who went and she was just like, you know, he, he was building his house at the time and she's like, he's doing gold gates and stuff. Like it's a little bit over the top. You know what I mean? Right. right, Yeah. Doesn't feel very yogic. And it's like, and I, and I don't even question him. I question the people who worship him. It's like, Mm. You know, and again, maybe it's because I was raised Mormon enough. I just really knew intuitively that whole system was a joke, you know, and now it's like the LDS church is having such a difficult time maintaining members. You know, it's like, it's just one big corporation. (laughs) So do you feel it's kind of been sort of financially driven then this kind of way of being? Oh, at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Can you explain that a little bit more, your thoughts on that? Because I, I think just for people listening, actually, I think this is an interesting conversation. Well, I, I think it's kind of a hard a hard line to walk if you're in a position like Sharat, you know, and I don't want to throw Kino under the bus, but like, I don't even think Kino's a good teacher. I think she's just good at marketing herself. Okay. I've asked her questions and I'm like, that's your answer? Like. <laughs> That's, that's it. That's all you got. Like, you know, and I, so it just goes to show, like, not everyone's a good teacher, but some people are really good at marketing themselves. And I think Sharat's a better teacher. I mean, my, my entire breakdown of Kapotasana was just based on watching Sharat get into Kapotasana. And it's, it's, 
he's the only person I ever actually saw really come from his thoracic spine as opposed to his lumbar, you know? Yeah. And he does that well. He didn't say that in words. I just watched him. But, but either way, like, when you have the opportunity, it's hard to stay humble. Like, it's just one of those things that, you know, absolute power corrupts. It's it's really hard not to be in that space. Hmm. You know, you have the chance to make all that money, to have all that fame. And if, 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 and, and really that's kind of like the lesson at that point, right? If that is hmm. your karma, that becomes the lesson. Like, how are you going to handle that power? And I just don't think either one of them have really done a good job at handling it well. What, in, in what way? Like, do you think that having all of that kind of authority for one person and being seen as this kind of mogul, this kind of head um, head honcho, you you think that um, that's created like a negative energy in terms of the strictness potentially of the way it's being taught and stuff like that? Well, he definitely has the option to set a certain rule and it just be the line, you know? Um, and people just don't have the inner compass to question it. Right. So they just, they allow it to be authority. I mean, if we, if we really think about like what happened with Guruji and the Me Too movement and everyone, you know, you know, beating up a dead man and, and just the fact that like he supposedly, I mean, I never had his hands on me, but like supposedly took advantage of people through his power. That's one way to take advantage. I think Sherat did it more so financially, mm. you know, again, like that becomes the, the lesson. Like, can you, can you stay humble with that kind of power? Can you, you know, channel it in a way that's healthy and utilize it for things that are of good as opposed to putting up gold gates, you know, like, mm. and, and, I'm not trying to be judgmental, but at the same time, like that's also not someone that I want to follow. Like, yeah, that's not something you find inspiring as a as a teacher. You're not drawn to that. No. I mean, I guess I really feel just having gone through so many years of the practice. There's definitely a sense of. You know, and this is something that Maya Heiss, Maya Heiss actually said. I don't know if you know who she is, but she's a certified teacher out of Venice. And she said, you know, you, you, can, you can burn off karma in this life or you can rack it up mm. if you're not careful. And I think that that's kind of what's happening is he's actually accumulating more karma than he is burning off. Because when you, when you really kind of surrender to a spiritual practice like this, if you truly do it right, you can't help but want to serve from a very humble place. And it's, and yes, you want to take care of yourself and make a living. That's your right. But, you know, it's, it becomes almost, almost an obligation to serve and give back in a healthy way, as opposed to a, a very accumulative way. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought about this actually. And actually this came, came to me when I practiced today and I sort of midway through my own practice today, I had this thought that, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is intention. Yeah. Like the intention behind something. And, and I, I thought to myself, I wonder if this sort of dogmatism or this strictness with the Ashtanga system is really come about from a financial intention rather than something else, you know, rather than something that's uh, inspiring on a spiritual level. And I sort of wondered 
how other teachers teach and how I teach it, which is more in an individual way, which is kind of seeing people more at an individual level and kind of making adaptations that are intelligent, you know, rather than being dogmatic with something, right? thinking that it's kind of, um, there seems to be this idea at the moment that strict is authentic or something like that, or um, being being stricter is sort of more truer to the Ashtanga system. And I kind of wondered what your experience has been like that from teaching and also being around other teachers that might teach it a little bit differently? Yeah, uh, well, I should probably at least cut him some slack in the sense that it's really hard to be individual when you have that many people. Mm. But at the same time, you're the authority in that moment. And if you're not presenting the right message, that's, that's, that's pretty critical, right? Like people are naturally going to obsess over something. People are always looking for boundaries. People want to know, you know, like what is black, what is white, what is right versus wrong. And that's not love. That's just control. Mm. And control is what drives a lot of our pain patterns and addictions. Whereas practicing and teaching from a place of love is kind of what heals all those spaces. Like allowing someone to be in their imperfection and be okay anyway. Mm. Be loved anyway. Like that's really where the healing happens. You know, for me when I was teaching, that was a lot of my focus. Like Mm. I couldn't help being an empath, this was a, a, a big thing that would happen constantly is I'd work with someone and I would pick up on their stuff energetically mm. and I would watch their bodies move to avoid the pain. And so mm. part of my work was to help them actually lean into those pain patterns so they could resolve and release them. Mm. I thought that, you know, if I'm going to, if I'm going to use asana as part of this teaching, then I might as well use asana to help them heal as opposed to like, Yay, you can catch your ankles. Let's enforce the ego more. Like, no, mm. I, it's, that's kind of irrelevant. Like, if we're not healing on the way, what's the point? Would, would you apply that same philosophy to say, like, um, being held, for example, at certain positions and things like that? What do you mean? Like, you know, I think when I think about the way it's kind of being taught out of the kind of, I'd say that what what is being sort of sold as the traditional model is that you generally don't move past certain postures right until they're kind of mastered or in, integrated in some way. And that, I think sometimes that can create a sort of negative thing within students that there's this thing they need to attain and that they kind of get into that kind of mode of thinking that they need to kind of get to that posture and they need to master that posture to move forward. And I think especially for Westerners, it can get that kind of goal-orientated sort of focus of their practice. I would say it... It depends on the teacher's intentions. Hmm. For myself, if I if I held someone at a position, it was mainly because they didn't have the strength, the endurance, or the openness to move f- forward. And so it was kind of a safety thing. Yeah. You know, if your bondas aren't strong enough, like why why am I moving you forward if if you haven't developed that power within you yet? Like if you're hmm. if you're too tight, I'm not going to move you past. <laughs> hmm. We got to open those things, you know. Hmm. Um, sometimes I would, knowing that a pose down the line would actually help a pose in front. Yeah, like, yeah. Do that on purpose. Yeah. It would just depend. Yeah. But it was never out of control. It was really more out of like, 
I don't want to burn them out and I want them to be safe. Yeah. Because I guess that's where some people think about some of this control, this rigidness, yeah, around um, around the system and not making adaptations or making any kind of changes for certain people's body types and things like that. And, you know, there isn't any kind of room for any extra things to be added. And it sort of gets very, like you say, sort of very dogmatic. And people kind of feel that you're you're not being true to the Ashtanga yoga system and, you know, you should be doing something else or practicing something else because you you added this or added that within the system. And it's very, I found that to be quite unhealthy for my body and I was definitely pushed through the series and and hurt many times, if I'm honest, you know, kind of doing that. And it took me some time to sort of realise that, this isn't an intelligent way to kind of move through this sequence. You know, I have to kind of learn to do this from a place of love that feels right for my body without losing the integrity of the system, you know? Oh yeah. I definitely would give extracurricular homework. Like there's no, <laughs> be, you know, I, 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 again, though I was more concerned holistically about their body and their mind and their spirit. I wasn't, I was less concerned about following the rules. Yeah. So that was your kind of focus and intention. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think about a lot of the poses, like what, like Kapotasana or Karandavasana, for example, mm. we're talking like, and if you watch any of my courses, breaking them down, like mm. breaking and working them in parts was critical mm. to putting mm. it back together. Yeah. Critical. I mean, Kapotasana, for example, most people do not have the strength in their side body to lift, stay lifted. They just collapse. And so yeah. they end up using the low back and they're not opening their heart, but it's because they don't have the strength. Mm. So you would do a lot of exercises to, to, to strengthen their serratus muscles, mm. to be able to hold them in position so they could move on, you know? Yeah. Rondavasana was another one. They just broke it down and, and and worked it in parts because that's a beast. Yeah. <laughs> it <is>. <laughs> <laughs> I did it. I, I would come all the way down. I could actually lose my bondas, relax, hang out for 10 minutes and go back up because I did such a good job mastering that. <laughs> but yeah. I, I'm I'm of the same sort of philosophy really. I've I'm you know, my background has helped me to be able to break down things into kind of certain segments and break things down so people could kind of follow it a little bit easier. But um, for me, it's intelligent, you know, especially things with like leg behind the head and things like this and kind of going into those things, not preparing the body properly. I think from my experience of being in my sore rooms and also what I've been put through in my own body was just not intelligent, you know. It just, there wasn't an intelligence to kind of doing that. And I found that to create... Um, more tension and than not and to be so rigid with it for me hasn't felt good and it isn't the way I teach the system and I, I've, I've spoken to some teachers who who they really I would say the word is like believe they believe in the system exactly you know as it is prescribed as you might say without doing any modifications and adaptations and I do feel that some people believe that to be true you know their belief around that is that that is the right thing to do and and the practitioner should should adapt to that system and I kind of know what your thoughts on are on this but it'd be interesting to see like what you think 
No, I think it's, I mean, look, and, and Mati, Mati Azrati was actually my first Ashtanga teacher when I finally yeah. got moved to LA and worked with her and she workshopped everything. Yeah. I guess that, that like inherently gave me permission, you know, <laughs> I was only 20 when I started working with her. And, uh, so I guess I was like, well, if she's doing it, you know, but, um, she was a little bit too Iyengar. Mm. I mean, we can argue like external versus internal rotation. And I'm going to tell you all day long, just like most people are right-handed, most people externally rotate. And I would never, ever, ever tell you to keep your feet in, ever. Yeah. Like, it will cause more issues to your low back that way. But um, <clears throat> no, prescribing it as is and making you adapt. Mm. No, I, I, I again, we're going back to just like, fit in the box or you can't be loved like that's I think what happens to people's brains is I need to fit in this mm -hmm. box or I'm not worthy and again why it was so critical for me to teach from a loving place as opposed to this dogmatic place because I was really tired of the shame mm -hmm. that the practice would bring up so you felt that in students or yourself that there was a sort of shame feeling so not to not being able to fit that model like that to, to practice it exactly that way or and for myself no because I always had the body that could do it so I'm not a good example mm. but I was sensitive to shame because of how I was raised I was scapegoat mm. I was shamed for everything mm. and I knew what that felt like. And so when I would see it in others, it was really quick to be like, no, 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 no. This mm. is not, this is not, uh-uh. We're not, we're not going to create more pain emotionally or psychologically. Yeah, that's interesting actually, because what I find interesting about this is that your body was very able to do I it. Know. <laughs> yeah. So you really should be the kind of stereotype Ashtangi, right? <laughs> yeah, but I knew I was different. I mean, yeah. I started gymnastics at like five and I was a diver and I, you know, I had a, a years of warming up. Like that's not yeah. fair. That's not fair to put that on other people. So potentially then you, your body could kind of work through that system as is, like without really doing too much. 100%. Yeah. And do you feel that it was just that you worked with teachers that were looking at it a little bit differently from a young age that gave you that other outlook? Which other outlook? Like to be, to adapt and to kind of modify and to sort of, you know, give people some different things to do that might help or? Um, I don't know if I'm going to answer your question properly, but mm. again, having Mati as a teacher, like her whole obsession was finding weakness in bodies. Oh, yeah. Workshop things to make you stronger. So she was not the best, like, example even of a true tissue true traditional teacher so her being my first real teacher already I already had a permission to kind of break things down a little bit hmm. but when I would come across other rooms like again I'm an empath so it's like I just smell out people's <laughs> oh my gosh what is this or I'd walk into a room of a teacher I didn't know because I traveling and they would try to project their control onto me and I'm like ew who are you like I'm here for a day calm down like I don't belong yeah. to you mm. and, and I would push back I had an experience in Spain with now I don't remember their names but I mm. went to the the studio the Shala in Madrid now the the main teacher was at the country 
but he had a sub and that sub was just on me like white on rice. And here I am, I'm a, a season fourth series practitioner doing primary and just doing it in a relaxing way. Mm. And he would like obsess over my toes and hands. And I'm oh, like, yeah. oh, oh, my God, yeah. yeah, no one likes that. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Like you want to put your stamp on me? No. Yeah, I but uh, I've met, like, uh, yeah, I've met was, plenty of uh, kind of insecure people like that. It's almost that their their need to teach is more to show you that they know what they're doing or something like that, rather than just uh, being comfortable in their own <laughs> in their own space. You know, it's kind of strange. But uh, yeah, I think there's there's definitely insecure teachers who kind of project that. Yeah, it's uh, it's annoying. Well, I mean. <laughs> Also, just because I've been scapegoated my whole life, if someone was being picked on, I'm real quick to want to protect that person because I know what it feels like. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. So your your sense of that really came from, from about being so empathetic to other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I, what I find interesting about it is that your body was so able to kind of do this stuff. And actually, I would have thought that someone would it might have been someone who struggled with the system or who felt that need to adapt and change you know I think in some ways because I was capable it almost gave me kind of permission uh teachers always loved my body oh I mean I was so strong and and able from the very beginning and it gave me a little bit of a of a premature authority i guess in that sense yeah so kind of people respected your decisions because you were able to kind of do all this stuff mm-hmm. yeah i understand that yeah i definitely come across like i've said this many times because i'm an outlier because i'm not authorized or certified you know a lot of people want to shun me mm. but because of my practice they can't yeah, so that gives like, you that sense of authority, yeah. Yeah, like they mm. really couldn't. Like as much as I've been hated, I've been respected. Yeah, I guess that helps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes me unique. You know, I, I, and again, there is a really good example of like, what are you going to do with that authority? Yeah. Hmm. So you never felt that need to get like this authorization sort of model in into your teaching or anything no i i actually felt like if i did i would be submitting to something i wasn't yeah it was never my desire to teach here's the ironic thing i never wanted to be a teacher like at all i loved my practice so much for my own well-being and that was really the staple it wasn't about anything else over time, though, you know, I would just post my practice for fun. Mm. And what I found, you know, and I had some videos on YouTube, like the one I did with Yoga Life, with Charles, and the Pick yeah. Up the Jump Back, and people sought me out. I, I have a friend, and I don't know if this is his quote or he got this from someplace else, and he said, you know, a job is something you find, but a career is something that finds you. And... Mm. The students came to me. 
I didn't go get authorized and then open a shala. The students sought me out from all over the world. I was having people message me from the UK and they're like, I'm going to be in Vegas. Can I work with you? <laughs> like, what? I'm not even a teacher. Hmm. But I would get those inquiries. And then eventually I put some structure around it because I thought, well, if people want to work with me, then I'll, I'll, I'll let them. Yeah, it sounds like a natural sort of thing. Yeah. And then, and so you always taught in that way, Pace, like this kind of. Um, non-dogmatic way of teaching primary series for example or taking people into the backbends and intermediate was it always kind of a little bit more loose and open yeah if someone was capable i wasn't going to hold them back mm. you know this was like one of my main bugbears in astanga really was that i was watching so many people i would say sort of forcing themselves with dropbacks before they'd even got through the backbends and intermediate and I just, I personally couldn't watch that and think that that was an intelligent thing to do. You know, I, I kind of, I was forced through that model and my body type is more, I'm more on the stronger side than, uh, than mm -hmm. backbending, so the front of my body. But uh, I've just found it to be unintelligent and I found this sort of way of pushing people to do dropbacks before they'd even done any of the backbends and intermediate was just, uh, it was wrong. And the, the way it was being taught in that way, and I thought this, I can't make sense of this. I know there are some people in this room that can do that, and that's fine. You know, there's, that's probably good for them. But to kind of force people through that and watching them just hurt their backs and, you know, just turning their feet out so wide just to get up. And it just loads of things that I just thought I can't, I couldn't teach that. I wouldn't feel good going to bed at night. That's not something I could kind of force on someone and then, think that that was a smart thing to do so for me they these are the kind of things that I saw that I thought I can't I can't do it that way I have to kind of do it differently with with it you know without losing its authenticity and I I kind of wondered what it was taught like before you know and I know a few older practitioners who started back in the day and and asking them how it was for them and how was it how how individual was it you know was it really just as it was or were there adaptations and my feeling is it has, it's definitely got more rigid and less individually oh, yeah. focused. Yeah. Yeah. And because of, again, because of my intuitive empathic side, for me, how I would teach a student was really based on their weaknesses. So if someone was in fear, mm. the, then the objective was to conquer the fear, to confront that fear. If someone was, and I loved this, like people would have tight spots and I'd be like, okay, let's go there. Like, let's stop protecting it. And, and I remember like, as soon as they would start screaming at me, I was, I would get really excited because I knew we were close to a breakthrough because they're just, <laughs> you can't go there. I'm going to break. I'm going to die. Like, and, I, and I'd hear the ego start to like try <laughs> to force me out because it was self. And I was like, oh, we're right there. Let's keep going. You know, like I... <laughs> And then they would just start sobbing because the emotional release would come out. And so, like, if someone was weak, I'd focus on let's build strength. If someone was too strong, I wouldn't mm. keep – I wasn't going to, like, give them more reasons to be strong. It was like, mm. well, let's learn how to be agile. Like, like mm. whatever their, their – their, um, wherever the balance needed to come in, that's where the focus went for me as a teacher. Yeah, that – to me, again, that's intelligence, right? I mean, I always think of the Astanga system as – it's designed in a way to balance out the body, but there has to be some adaptations for it to kind of 
fit everybody. You can't just be so so rigid. And sometimes when I talk to some teachers who have this rigidity about the system, I find it in other aspects of themselves. You know, it's just there's some kind of blockage somewhere. You know, there's some sort of blockage in some way, spiritually or something that it is sort of they're not open to this. You know, it's sort of it's such a rigid approach to to body movement. And I kind of find that talking to some people about that, they they can almost get angry about questioning it. You know, there's an there's almost a kind of there's such a defensive anger around it. And whenever I meet that kind of energy, I know something's not quite right, you know? Yeah. And I mean, <clears throat> for example, like if you were Pitta dominant, I could see that. I just, it's the first few sessions I would just really study your energy. Like Pitta people, they tend to, um, they tend to lean forward and they tend to be hungry and they tend to not slow down and they just, they're consumers. And so for them, it's really important to get them to slow down, to pace themselves and to be still. Then you have your Vata types that are just, they're not in their bodies and like mm. learning how to get someone in their body, like <laughs> go to do dropbacks on a guy who's six foot four, 210 pounds and he's light as a feather because he's not in his body. <laughs> and it's like, so there's, there's that, you know, getting them connected to their skin. Mm. Vata types are so interesting to deal with in that way because they're just, they're so disconnected from their bodies. Yeah. They tend to not get sore easily either. And then you've got like the kapha types that just don't want to move. They're so comfortable being in their body in that moment and almost like in a, in a, not a lazy sense so much, but just like they're good way. They're, they're good taking their time, you know, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. you want to help them pick up the pace and, um, be, be a little bit more in the flow and less just you know, sedentary or whatever. But like, I, you know, that, that was my approach. It was really, really important. And then of course, as you get to know the student and you get further into it, then a lot of the psychological pain starts to surface. The holograms that are stuck in the body start to talk to you. Mm. I mean, I don't, I mean, I, I remember I was in Italy and there was a girl who was struggling with drawbacks and I wanted her to open her heart more. And she was just so protective. And I just started crying and I just said, it's safe now. Like, I don't know what it was. And she finally confessed to me. She'd never really grieved the death of her father. And, and yeah, it just all just came flooding out. Mm. Like to me, this was just like, this was the essence of the practice that just got lost in the dogma. So do you think that potentially that side of practice, that kind of, that inquiry, that kind of digging, I think of it as digging, you know, we can talk about this in a bit, but when I think about the Astanga system and practice, I think about it as like you're an archaeologist or something. You're just kind of digging into yourself and your past and you're just trying to churn things up and find things. And do you think that maybe kind of being so dogmatic with the way it's taught kind of doesn't enable that process to kind of come through as much? Oh, 100%, because you're more externally focused than internally focused. Like 100%. Mm. Like this mean- is... A- an internal practice and yet mm. you're supposed to go within but how can you do that if you're always focused on the rules that are outside of you hmm. yeah I, I i like i like i'd like to bring this up to people because my main feeling is that like i say that there is this feeling around the stanga that you, the more strict you are the more authentic it is yeah that seems to be the kind of way of thinking if you practice a stanga strictly 
then you're kind of being more traditional and authentic. You know, and there's even some teachers I've seen online who, you know, it's like they're telling people off. There's this kind of, you know, there's this sort of attitude that it has to be specifically correct in some way. And if it's not specifically correct, then you're not a, a good practitioner in some way or something like that. And yeah, it doesn't feel right. That's really just their own shame being projected outward. Mm. I can't be wrong, so you're going to be wrong. Yeah. Yeah, this is something I kind of feel. I mean, I, there are some teachers I know who teach that in that way, and I really respect them as teachers and individuals a lot. Um, and I know that they believe that the system is this, like they think of it as in terms of a surrender, I think, that you kind of surrender to this process and that in that way you, you're kind of opening yourself up to something. Have you got any sort of thoughts around that? I mean, again, I think there's a fine line because I've had some really good teachers. The only two people I've ever totally surrendered to 100% were Maya and Mati. And I didn't even do it permanently. Mm. Um, I mean, Mati ended up moving to Hawaii. That's that reason. I was young. But at the time I started working with Maya, it was because I was so burnt out and I had lost my love for the practice. I, had, I was mm. done with third and I needed a new approach and she gave me the most feminine approach to the practice which imagine doing third series in a feminine way right like how do you do that <laughs> but she gave me that like so if Mati was a genius at finding your weakness Ma Maya was a genius at finding your stuckness because hmm. Maya didn't have she wasn't type a she didn't have any pitta in her and so she didn't have that fire to fuel her so she had to find other ways to get through and this is pretty much from Guruji and she had to learn to lean as opposed to push and force, which is a very different modality. And I, I took that, the, the beauty is I took that approach and I extracted it out. And not only did I apply it to my own students when necessary, but I applied it to my life. And that was very helpful. And I did, I did kind of fall back in love with my practice after working with her. Um, mm. But it didn't, it wasn't like a permanent thing. It wasn't a long-term thing. Ultimately, I still needed to go, to go on. And I ended up working with um, Ralph Krauss, who was a student of Richard Freeman and, and yeah. finishing fourth. Mm. But even he wasn't super dogmatic. He was just like, he had a, he had a masculine approach. He, he, would, um, he would kind of throw the poses on you and just show you how to do them and then how to finesse them. And that was that. He wasn't super particular about anything he was a young guy genius mm. like he's young so so do you, when you say finesse do you mean make adaptations like kind of modifications to the series or no i would say like if you're if you are an acrobat or you're a dancer or you're a gymnast or something like you don't just execute you point your toes right mm. and so when i say finesse it was like the finishing touches like you didn't make it to fourth to be sloppy <laughs> yeah like we're gonna hmm. we're gonna add the finishing touches. Make make sure like like primary you can do in a relaxed way because at this point that's just a nice massage, right? Hmm. Fourth, if you're gonna do fourth, you're gonna do it, and you're going to make sure that your heel, your toes, your fingers, your um, hmm. mudras, like those are all on point. So he was he was particular about that, probably from Richard Freeman, hmm. um, but but. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in that, I, I, but it makes sense. Like you don't get all the way to there and do it sloppy. Yeah. But, <laughs> but how were they? How were they not dogmatic? These guys. Like, how, in what way were they not dogmatic in terms of the the sequencing, or was it different? I think you know, 
you're going to get to fourth, you've earned a certain degree of freedom. Mm. And so I think that's where the, the non-dogma came in. Like, I'm not going to control every little nuance of your practice because you worked hard to get here. You've earned a certain degree of freedom. So I think that's mm. like the more beginner you are, the more lines you have to toe. Yeah. But yeah, you have to create that structure, yeah. Yeah, but mm. you've really earned it at that point. Yeah. And you, I, something I thought of you said in your video, actually, and it stuck with me, was I think you said something like four series is for the board. What did you say? Overachiever. Board overachiever, yeah, and that really made me laugh. <laughs> and <laughs> and I thought about that. I, actually, that came back to me many times, that board overachiever. And I, I wonder, could you like elaborate on that a little bit? Because it, it, it made me laugh. Well, because you're really not gaining anything spiritually at that point. Okay, can you expand on that? Because I think this is interesting. Like, I mean, the only thing, I don't know if you saw my, my video of me doing fourth, but like I described fourth as kind of a rabbit hole because nothing makes sense anymore at that point. Mm. And just the way that you're stretching the body, it's almost like it's almost like the rest of the practice you're working like vertically or horizontal lines, right? Mm. Like we're working like our, our hips or our shoulders or forward folds or back bends. Like it's very structured in that sense. Fourth is like you're going to do this. You're going to do what looks like a forward fold and then we're going to twist our feet out and we're going to work an angle. <laughs> so there's a lot of these weird angles that you end up hitting fourth series. You're like, whoa, I don't even know if that's a good or a bad stretch because that's such a foreign stretch. Oh, yeah. So that in that sense, it's it's – very different, but it's just, it's unnecessary. Like I didn't get anything <laughs> for that would have made me a better person. It was just, yeah. this is just where you go. And I've also said, you know, a fourth is not a residence. It's just a place you visit. Yeah. In and out. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I thought about this because recently I started to kind of question again, why am I doing this? Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons I found your video, actually, like, it, you know, unintentionally, but just intuitively. And I kind of realized recently, aside from what I'm gaining or not gaining physically, I realized recently that, and I don't mean this in an egotistical way, but I actually realized that I kind of got from this what I came in to get from it, you know. I realized I kind of reached a place that, and this came about very intuitively to me. I was like, oh, actually, the reason I got into this so many years ago, I, I kind of, I've resolved a lot of that stuff. And the things I was looking for and the answers I was looking for in my life, I've, I kind of realized and I kind of understood. And it made me question again, what am I getting from this moving forward? You know, like, why am I kind of continuing to do such a de dedicated kind of rigorous practice? And I realized that, Without that drive, it's not the same anymore. It hasn't got the same focus because I don't have that same need to kind of resolve something or to dig into something anymore. And and I heard what you said. I think you said something. It was like like a relationship dying or your relationship dying to yoga. And I, I thought that was quite a powerful sort of way of describing it. And uh, I don't know... If, if people know listening, but did you kind of stop practicing Ashtanga then completely or how did it kind of play out? Yeah, I did actually. And yeah. it's interesting also because I, 
was talking to Radha, you know, Prem's wife. This was in 2017 in Bali, and she said, finishing fourth is dangerous. In what way? She said, because half the people who finish it won't come back. Because it's just like you're done. It does something. I can't really tell you. It just does something to your brain. I don't know if it's like... I mean, the best analogy I can give is like, okay, I hit the summit. I'm at the top of the mountain. There's nowhere else to go from here. I mean, fifth, are you kidding me? No, I'm not doing that to myself. I already contorted myself enough in fourth. I'm not. Hmm. That, that's, that's stupid. And it's not even a desire. Ralph gave me the first pose in a fifth series. It's ridiculous. And, <laughs> <clears throat> and I, <clears throat> excuse me, I, um, yeah, I just, it was like a relationship had run its course. Run its course, yeah. It was nothing wrong. Mm. It wasn't a burnout. It wasn't like I hated it. It was, it just ran its course. It did what it needed to do. Mm. And I struggled to continue teaching because I felt, well, if I'm not still growing, then I don't really have that same passion to turn around and give. That I, I, you know, I struggled with. And it sucks mm. because, right, it's like a lot of people who practice do want to teach and do want to have a, an international name. And it's like I totally got there. <laughs> I'm to be like, okay, I'm bored. Time out, guys. <laughs> bye. <laughs> but that, that was the thing. And, you know, I had to honor that and move forward. A lot of people who... who fall into the practice it's like the saving grace for them and it was for me at a time too mm. but there is life after that yeah. and spiritually you know in terms of the principles and the philosophy i i take a lot of that with me i, I love the principles i love the philosophy but <clears throat> this need to show up on my mat every day now, I did start practicing again, but it was more for physical reasons. I found that mm. I, I kind of missed the physical connection to my body. Mm. And was that just a kind of, um, would you still practice like a series or something like that? Or would you just kind of do your own thing? Or At this point, um, when I do practice, I kind of extract a little bit from each series that I yeah. need. It's not so much like totally linear according to the system. Sometimes mm. it is. Sometimes I'll just do primary series. But, you know, I got into weightlifting. And I don't love lifting weights. <laughs> I got into it because I was like, well, now I can actually create the body that I want. You know, <laughs> help to a certain practice where I need my mobility. Right? I can yeah. just do it. But I don't love it. And ironically, lifting weights does not make me feel strong. It's different. Yeah, you're picking something up rather than pushing down. <laughs> it doesn't make me feel like picking up and jumping back makes me feel strong. Yeah. Pulling my entire body weight in one breath makes me feel strong, but lifting weights does not make me feel strong. So that's really more for vanity reasons or even just <laughs> in a healthy way and continue to have weight bearing activities, but it's not, it's not the same. So would you say that, you know, I guess maybe reaching the end of four series is where you hit that kind of feeling in your body intuitively that you kind of reach the summit you as you described like you kind of reach the apex and then and then your drive to practice had, had kind of gone yeah but was that something that 
like on an emotional level that you sort of resolved like within yourself like through your history or family or anything specific like that or was it just a general feeling Oh, that I that, that like like did the practice shift like affect other areas of my life? Is that what you're saying? I think more like um, yeah, or actually maybe more like did you come to some sort of understanding of something, or did you resolve something in your personal life that was kind of the same? It within happened at the same time, you know, and that kind of is what you kind of figured out, and that's why you stopped, or was it purely just something that intuitively come up? No. In fact, I would say it was the opposite. I would say that the end of my practice created a big void in my life. Yeah, because you dedicated so much time and space to it. And I really, truly, I'm just going to like put this out there, mm. look back and I think, was my practice always just an escape? Was it? I don't know. <laughs> it created that much of a void for me. Was it an escape? <laughs> I've asked myself this many times, yeah. Was it a distraction now that I'm really stuck with the work? <laughs> I just sit here and I'm like, I got I have no interest in doing I just be here. Okay, this is fun. Like this is a whole other level of just hell. <laughs> <laughs> I think I you know, my personality type is kind of like that. You know, I, I kind of find something, I fall in love with it and I, I go into it like a thousand percent and that's kind of how I, I've always kind of done things and I've often asked myself that about the Astanga system is I used to do a lot of fighting and martial arts before Astanga and I, and, that, and I was kind of obsessive about that and I kind of thought like oh is, am I replacing something with something else and is this is this healthy in that way am I kind of just trying to fill a gap or whatever I, I've definitely been down that road but I think as a practice my yoga practice was much healthier than some of the other practices I did before. But I think removing that amount of time and energy you put into something each day, I could definitely see that as having a void afterwards. Yeah, because it's, it's, you change your life for it, right? I mean, you've changed your, you changed your whole life to kind of focus on that. Yeah, and the, the, the thing that really sucked was afterwards – Everyone would be like, oh, well, something will just come in. <laughs> it did not happen. Huh? Nothing has come in. Huh. And that's really challenging. And I think, okay, so am I at a, this place where I, I get to choose? <laughs> Great, but like nothing has really fed my soul on the same level. No. Nothing. And again that makes me go okay is this the real work was that was that just total circus the whole time and this is actually the work what do you think about that like honestly that's really interesting what do you think oh my god like if i knew this was <laughs> <laughs> like, what is held on like this is not the all Paige, you could have been a board overachiever for another 10 years <laughs> and but the, but think about the word board right like yeah. board Lies that you're already starting to miss something internally and <laughs> now I'm just bored <laughs> <laughs> it's not oh it's it's challenging yeah I mean that's all I can say is like this is the real spiritual work is when you have nothing to distract yourself with what do you mm. do with yourself so could potentially the Astanga system be a distraction 
I think so. And again, it's not <laughs> that there isn't virtue in, in going deeper. If Should you choose to go deeper? Should you choose to go inside? There's a lot to be gained. There's a lot to be healed. Obviously, we can purge the body physically mm. and really purify that part. But as long as you're doing, are you being? And now that I'm stuck with just being, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's just a whole other level. <laughs> I definitely, I mean, you gave a couple of examples already today on, you know, this lady in Italy backbending and, you know, kind of experiencing the the pain of grieving for someone. You know, there's definitely, regardless of what you think of or anyone thinks listening of different avoidance practices, there's definitely an aspect to asana practice where being embodied at a point of your day in a quiet room is a benefit <laughs> and it can bring mm-hmm. up a lot of positive things and change. But I do wonder how long do we really need to do that for? You know, how much kind of work do you need to do or how much kind of digging do you need to do before? It, it, I always think that these things can be stepping stones, yeah? Because I've definitely well, had practices before that were stepping stones to the next thing. So I think everything can run its course. I don't think uh, – I don't think – you. My feeling is that I, I don't think I need, would need to practice Ashtanga for the rest of my life. My feeling is it, it's a stepping stone in some way and that will kind of you know, rear its head when that happens. Absolutely. And the only constant is change, right? Hmm. And, you know, impermanence is kind of where it's at. And I wrote a book, I published it in 2019, and it was yeah. at the I published it, it was at the time I was having this falling out with my practice. And I, <laughs> I did kind of write about this in my book, the, you know, the realization that like we can't outrun the ego. I think a lot of times we, we use the practice to try to burn off that ego and to get to a place where like I'm egoless. But the, what you find on the other side is I'm still in this body. I'm still subject to the human condition. Therefore, I'm still subject to ego. And that's why I say I feel like now that I've removed the practice from my life, it's like, well, now I'm stuck with the actual work. Mm. And now I have to contend with my ego in a way that I couldn't before because I could just dive into the practice and avoid it. Do you, do you think then in some way uh, an embodied practice could also be – a a way of avoiding things then is that what you mean yeah yeah absolutely it's interesting sorry go on well i was just gonna say in some ways it confronts our pain patterns Mm. right like helping someone you know grieve a loss or whatever and and really you know move into the body in ways where we we find we're 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 holding pain let's release it though i mean that's fabulous that's that's one way to absolutely confront the ego yeah and but it's not the only way. Mm. And obviously, I've found that. But, <laughs> okay, I got to this place and I'm still stuck with my ego. Now what? Yeah. So now what? And I kept, I kept wanting to find something to fill mm. that void. But is the void really just me not wanting to confront the moment, the boring moment, without any distraction? Because that's all I'm left with. Yeah. Maybe that's where you're at. That's the stepping stone, yeah, is kind of being in that place. And I've that's... been here a time now. <laughs> huh? I've been here a long time now. I mean, I, <laughs> when I filmed, the last time I practiced fourth was in Italy in 2018. So it's been a while. Yeah. 
I so, think it sounds like an interesting place to be, especially having practiced for so long and then to kind of let go of that and be in a different place. I think one of the hardest things that I've had to reconcile, and part of this is astrological, you know, certain certain transits will definitely weigh on you and force your psyche to look at things and reconcile things, you know, and I, I had my Pluto square and I had Neptune on my Mercury and, you know, Mercury is your interface, like Mercury is the ego and to have Neptune pull away veils on certain things that I just thought were only to find out it's like you're pulling up the curtain and you're like, wait, what? Mm. That's not real. So I've, I've been disillusioned on top of this experience with other things and I've just realized that like, there is nothing in our human experience that really fills this. It's just a matter of where we want to put our energy. Like yeah. nothing, nothing is ultimately a cure. It's just where do you want to put your focus? Mm. Do you want to put it in the practice? Do you want to put it in motherhood? Do you want to put it in work? Because that's the ego, right? The ego needs to focus on something. And as long mm. as you're here, you have to focus on something. And I think that that was like such a letdown to realize like, no, I want to <laughs> cure. I want yeah. to cure ego I don't want I don't want that to be the answer but ultimately like once you extract it all out and it loses its it loses its essence you're like wow that that's that's all that's left is just where do I want where do I want to put my focus yeah and Astanga is a place that you can focus a lot and now I look back and I'm like god that was a gift <laughs> That was such a gift to have. With if it was an escape, if it was a distraction, for a while it lasted. It was amazing, and ugh. Yeah, I mean, it, it does take up a lot of energy. Yeah, it takes up a lot of focus and a lot of energy. And like I say, most practitioners change their life to to suit around it, don't they? It becomes the the focal point of the day, really. I mean, I guess the good news is, like, when you get to a place where things lose their value in that sense your 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 propensity to experience loss also goes down because you're not holding it to a certain standard anymore yeah so if it's not if you're not as invested or if it goes away you're not like lost you're just like oh yeah it's just it's done yeah but I, you know, again, this is why people will put so much gravity into the dogma because they need some place to lean. People just yeah. need, they need that cure. They need to know that this is the way that's going to bring them the fulfillment, the joy, the peace, whatever it is they're looking for to cultivate. They're like, this is it. Don't take it away from me. And people do it with religion. People do it with their careers. People just, they, they need something to fixate on. Mm. Um. You know, again, like when you're disillusioned and you go, okay, well, that was just an obsession that wasn't actually a cure. It's it's a little humbling, but, you know, it's just a matter of like, where do I want to really put myself each day? Like, that's the question I ask. What do I want to do with myself today? Yeah. Without, without having that drive. Yeah. Huh? Sorry, I missed your last bit. Sorry. Can you... Oh, no, I was just saying because I don't have this natural thing to obsess over anymore. Yeah. And mm. it's not easy. No. This is probably, like I said, much much harder than learning fourth series is learning how to just be okay with boring, empty, <laughs> ordinary moments day after day. 
joy from here you know yeah <laughs> and I found, you, mm. I found myself actually being quite apathetic for a while I, and mm. I was using that as a defense mechanism actually um and I've moved out of that but what do you mean you know so apathy is the absence of feeling basically yeah. and because I had lost so much I guess I guess I should fill you in like between being an entrepreneur, you know, losing businesses, I was assaulted by, by someone I had known for 15 years in 2019 and mm -hmm. all these obstacles, all these hurdles, and I no longer had that sanctity of the practice to lean on. And there was just, you know, apathy is typically born out of a fear of loss. Like mm -hmm. I've experienced much loss. I don't want to feel anymore because if I feel that I might lose it. But then once I became more disillusioned, that fear of loss kind of dwindled. And so, so the apathy did as well. Like I wasn't like afraid to lose anything because the things that I thought were so meaningful, like even like the idea of, you know, marriage or motherhood to me, like it's just one more thing to do with your life. But it's not, again, it's not a cure. And mm -hmm. so that helped me to move out of apathy. Whereas like initially I was really like, I don't, I don't want to invest and then lose it. Yeah. So was that overcoming of fear then? Yeah, but I think, being, like I said, I think the disillusionment was really what helped. Mm. And mm. and just recognizing that, like, there again, I just keep saying there's there's no cure. It's not like it's not like investing in any one aspect of life is going to save you mm. from the ego that you don't want to deal with. Mm. It's always going to be there. Yeah. But that's okay. That's like an acceptance <laughs> thing, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm, even, I'm even more aware of this principle than when I even talked about it in my book. And because yeah. I thought that that would just be a temporary place and it's become a very long temporary place, <laughs> a permanent place, I don't know. But, but, um, yeah, I mean, talking about just different levels of spirituality and, and aspects of, of dealing with ego, this is a whole other level of, mm. you know, and I, and I tell people all the time, like, Santosha has become my rock because I have to wake up and choose to engage the moment and be happy anyway. Yeah. And not rely on anything anymore to bring it to me. I have to bring it to the moment. Mm. So it's interesting that potentially what you're practicing now is harder. Oh, yeah. Mm. Without the, necessarily the physical, as you described it, as a distraction in some way. Well, mm. once something feels empty to you, you can't use it as a distraction because you realize you're like, this is not what I thought. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't, it's not the holy grail. I, I yeah. the curtain lifted. Yeah, you, you, you can't, you can't do that same practice with the same intention or the same feeling anymore and you look i mean when you're practicing ashtanga it's a long road most people will never get to third let alone fourth yeah. and journey is easy to surrender to because it's long it's purposeful it fills that void and it's never ending <laughs> and you get to the end thinking that eyes the there and you're like wait what there's no prize and now i just feel even more void um mm. 
Yeah, I would advise people to slow down, enjoy that moment while you can. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you hear that, listeners? No, Don't I'm get just... to the end. Just, just dr- drag it out. <laughs> It's interesting because I spoke to someone about this not not too long ago and uh, we discussed this aspect of practice and embodiment and and we kind of agreed that there was parts of Buddhism that we both didn't relate to and that was that this sense that uh, escaping the body and that, you know, a lot of spiritual practices kind of talk about this escaping the body and I've always felt quite a very much in my body kind of person, quite animalistic in that way. You know, I kind of, I think about my life in that way. Uh, and I've, I've never, like I said, I've never really related too much to practices that are kind of moving away from the body and out of the body and being less in body. But what you're talking about is quite interesting actually, because you're talking about having kind of been in your body for so long to such a sort of deep level, kind of getting to the end of that. And now you're at this point that sounds a little bit like what we read about in a lot of these texts where what else is there? You know, you're sort of in this other space. It's, yeah. it's <laughs> Which is hard. It's so hard to deal with. It's like, where do I run? It doesn't matter because you're still going to be there. <laughs> yeah. So just keep distracting ourselves. Yeah. Well, and, and I will say, because I coach, right? And, Again, people people are kind of hard on themselves when it comes to, to spirituality and new age and like, yeah, let's mm. outrun the ego and distractions are bad. You know what? Distractions are actually not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it keeps you happy. It keeps you focused. It, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's just part of the human condition. And I, I've really learned to love that. I've learned to embrace the humanness and to be less judgmental or less... Like, oh, you're only there and supposed to hear. Like, no, it's it's fine. Be there. Be in your ignorance. Be in your bliss. Be in your distractions. Because life is so hard. And mm. you don't have these crutches. It's even harder. It takes mm. so much strength of mind to be present when you don't have something to distract you. It really does. Yeah. The amount of discipline required on my end to build, to create, to show up, to do, because I don't have the inner drive pushing me. Yeah. It's a very it's harder place. Yeah. I, I feel a bit like that at the moment, actually. It's sort of, you know, I, I think, like you said, you don't have that same drive. You don't have that same intention with it. And I, I don't think, I can't really do something half-assed, you know. I have to kind of be in it or I'm not you know so I kind of I kind of relate to that a little bit lately actually but like right now I'm Mm. you know preparing to launch a new business and we're really going to scale it big time Mm. you know I went through a very long period where like money really wasn't my focus uh Mm. brother died a lot of my drive died with him Mm. and that was in 2012 and so I'm trying to channel that just so I have some place to put focus. And it's interesting because it's like, well, I don't need a lot of money. Like I, I really don't. So like what I want to be a little more comfortable. Okay, sure. But, but yeah. ultimately that doesn't drive me. And so I have to really lean on like a greater purpose of service, but even to build this. Yeah. And so it's like, for me, part of, part of the reason I'm building this 
and wanting to go as big as I'm choosing to go is actually just so that I, I have I have the resources to help others. Like I'm like I have mm. I can't do this for me because that's not enough anymore. It needs to be something else. And you know if I can help animals, if I can help people who are struggling, like that gives me a sense that that, that actually starts a little bit of a fire in me. Yeah. So that that kind of um, that's that kind of energy that you need. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. My own ego is doesn't care. <laughs> like my ego could care less. I, my 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 ego at this point could care less if I am working at you know a diner to make money. Like yeah. I really don't care. There's no there's no purpose behind like that for me. It really needs to mm. be about others at this point in order for me to have fire because I I don't have that selfishness anymore. No. But it sounds like you kind of always had that, right? It sounds like the way you describe yourself as a teacher and seeing people in that way, you you know, that, that kind of wanting to help others. Well, definitely. I have a lot of integrity, you know, so if I'm going to mm. step into that role, I'm going to do it in a way that does serve others, not me. Um, mm. But even just doing my own practice was totally self-centered that was totally about yeah yeah experience. like <laughs> totally, yeah. I bought that like I wanted to to be at the peak you know it's not that much better at the, on on the, on the <laughs> floor as it was at the third series floor like oh it's not a whole lot different yeah <clears throat> stay there stay there longer <laughs> Just, uh, we've got a bit more time. I wanted to talk to you about something else, if that's all right. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I remember in one of your things, you, you talked about, like, woke culture in yoga. And I found this quite funny and a bit interesting. But um, I wanted to see if you could sort of expand on that a little bit, what you've kind of seen or what you feel. And this, I think, let me just read this. This sort of... Um, like everybody, I think you described it as like this kind of everyone smiling and everything have to be kind of nice and kind of, you know, this sort of, this energy in, in sort of yogic, sort of uh, the yoga world. So I was watching a TikTok actually, and this podcaster was talking about the difference between being kind and being nice. Being kind and being nice. Okay. Yeah. And she said, people on the West Coast of the United States, they're nice but they're not kind. And she said people on the East Coast are kind, but they're not nice. (laughs) Yeah, I know what you mean. And she used the example (laughs) of if your tire, you know, blows on the side of the road. And she goes on the West Coast because people are nice, but not kind, (laughs) will be like, oh, so sorry that happened to you. That really sucks. (laughs) Gotta go. Yeah. And she goes East Coast, you blow a tire, and they're gonna be like, "What the fuck is wrong with you? What, what are you nails? <laughs> like, get out of the way. Let me fix the tire for you." Yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah, they're kind, but they're not nice. And yeah. I think that that is really kind of where I'm going with this whole like sugar-coated mm. idea of spirituality, because to be in a space where we're going inward is so confrontational. Mm. And so uncomfortable and yes. addressing things that are so ugly. But see, people are so afraid that if they're not nice and they're not positive, then they're not spiritual. 
There's nothing nice or positive about spirituality, though. That's the irony. Yeah. Where did the yeah. <clears throat> I don't know. I, I feel like, in a way, yoga's sort of become a little bit of like a wellness package or something. You know, it's sort of sold a little bit as a, as a sort of feel-good thing, you know. And I, I see that a lot in studios here. It's, I mean, I, I guess there's space for that, but I, I never got into this for that reason. It was never... I never thought about it in that way. I never thought about doing yoga or ashtanga as a as a feel good thing. Really, it was more of a some sort of like digging or you know like focusing. You know, it wasn't really like that. But that that's kind of what I see is um, becoming a bit more of a like a wellness sort of spa package or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, and that like you have to be positive. I don't. The, even even when it comes to manifesting, positivity doesn't work. You have to be real. You have to. The only way to get to where you want to go is to get through the parts that are in the way. Part you have to step mm. into that, and sometimes yeah. they're dark and ugly. I don't. Mm. Again, I don't know where this whole positivity thing came from. You know, and <clears throat> there's a speaker who I follow. Uh, his name is Simon Sinek, and he even just, like, tries to break down the difference between, like, positivity and optimism and to strive for being optimistic as opposed mm. to positive. Because we don't want to deny reality. Mm. We can't deny reality and embrace it, right? We have to just, in order to embrace, we have to accept mm. it for what it is. And that's how we get to where we want to be. Mm. But by being positive, we're denying certain yeah. things. Yeah, I sort of see it a little bit like avoidance or something in some way, you know. It's sort of like avoiding reality or just denying what's sort of, like you say, what's there. Right, and how do you heal from that place? If we're trying to deny what's mm. actually going down, we're not dealing with anything. We're not healing anything. We're not confronting anything, you know, and it's like, let's tiptoe, let's sugarcoat, mm. let's not look at the elephant in the room. I mean, look at what happened with Guruji and like, you know, like everyone just being nice because, you know, because that's what you do. You don't mm. question the guru and then he has too much power, you know? <clears throat> mm. Yeah, I mean, there's something inherently wrong <laughs> when it goes to that level, yeah. And... The other thing is, it's almost like, again, as a coach, I come across this all the time. People don't want to confront themselves because they're afraid there's truth in it. Our mm. wounds are never based in truth. Our wounds are always based in lies. So confronting the lie is essential to creating that truth, right? Like, inherent, we, we, inherently, we are lovable, beautiful beings. If we confront a wound, say, that was based in trauma, you know, being molested or, or being abused... We made up a lie about ourselves. We decided we're unlovable. And so, like, in that confrontation, people avoid it because they don't want to, to go there think, because they think it's true. And they're like, I have to avoid that. No, I, I, can't, I can't go there. Yeah. It's like all you're doing is basically, like, shedding light on a lie so it can be moved out. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up with Guruji and Ashtanga because I, I've always thought of Ashtanga as... Uh as a practice of a non-avoidance, you know, it's, for me, it's always been the opposite, you know, you're kind of forced in a way to sort of meet yourself in lots of these different challenging postures and the sequencing is sort of designed in that way that you, 
you know you meet all these challenges along the way and I think I think the teachers that we're sort of describing as sort of dogmatic I think that that's the way they feel about some of this sort of dogmatism in the in the sequencing is that you know you're kind of you're not avoiding something you're not you know you're kind of not avoiding the the potential challenge that you do have you got any thoughts on that because it, it's interesting that yes and no i mean i as, a, as someone who's watched bodies people are amazing moving in ways to avoid confronting the pain like they this <laughs> is at doing this so i think just because we're showing up and we're supposed to be confronting through the daily ritual Mean we are, and it's real easy to 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 piggyback on aspects of our practice that don't confront, don't look yeah. at, and then we and then we build up the monster even more because we're avoiding the thing we don't want to look at. That thing's only going to grow. Yeah, I guess it goes back to intention again. Right. It takes courage. It takes so much courage to look at the things that are ugly, and. Mm. I feel like we really, as a species, are lacking so much courage. What do you mean by that? Can you expand on that? People don't, people don't want to confront things. They don't want to confront themselves. They don't want to confront others. They don't want to see, be seen as, as wrong or the bad guy. So, again, they're going to be nice. Yeah. Yeah, I see that, especially living here. I live in Norway. I'm, I'm originally from London, which is definitely a confrontational place, but Norway's a lot more... Uh, nice I guess in that way and people are not very confrontational and I think that where I grew up it was kind of I kind of what I not missed but I appreciate it is that it was a lot rawer you know it was very raw with people how people are and I, in a way that was kind of easier London has such <laughs> like, so yeah. candid in London you can't not have yeah. a good time laughing at the candor yeah but uh it's funny because what I what I, I wanted to just swing into this was I've heard a couple of um, Astanga teachers who, you know, taught for many, many years who recently have kind of said, like, basically, you know, they didn't feel the system was very good for their body and they kind of pushed their students through it because they, you know, through dogmatism probably, you know, thinking that this is the correct method and did that for decades. And then, you know, sometime later just having some kind of epiphany or some sort of change in their life was like, yeah, that wasn't right. You know, that wasn't right to do that, you know, for so many years. And it's interesting for a practice that is so, what I think of as not avoiding, it can also create the same sort of pattern that you're trying to, to change, you know, this sort of dogmatism. Oh, it can amplify it. It can be. It can amplify it. Yeah. Yeah. And be a space where you don't have to confront certain things. I look at like, um, oh gosh, what is his name out of Ohio? I'm not a fan of his. Mark Garreau I love, so it's not Mark. I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. But, and it's great. Maybe he needs to hear it. But like the, the thing about going from addiction to Ashtanga and just, you can tell by the way he talks about things. Ah, uh, this, um... I know who yeah, you mean. He didn't give yeah, any okay, of yeah. his addictions. He just put it someplace else. So, um, you know, mm. and, and the shame patterns, they're totally built into how he teaches. In, in terms of dogmatism? Yes. 
I can't remember the guy's name, but I know exactly who you mean. He's covered in tattoos, yeah? yeah? He's got like, yeah, yeah, I, a, I know who you mean, yeah. I never met him. I find him to be very, very, very offensive to the healing process. Through, through dogmatism? Mm -hmm. or? Yeah, because like, he yeah. didn't really do, he's not doing the inner work. I mean, I haven't, I haven't heard him speak in a long time. Maybe, maybe this has changed, but there's not a whole lot of love behind his, his energy. It's very hard. It's very, you know, authoritative very black and white it's you know even just you know getting authorized early on you know attitude yeah. of you know i'm the authority and it's like dude you're still growing and healing too have a little humility and mm. just that kind of flavor i find very offensive to the healing process yeah i think anything where there's too much control and too much authority and especially if it's in some sort of hierarchical uh, way I don't think he's so he, <laughs> it's so positive thing, and I and I I've noticed this people who are stuck in their pain patterns their abuse patterns oftentimes do mm. not seek out a teacher that helps them heal it they seek out a teacher that reinforces it yeah totally yeah unfortunately we we, we kind of find relationships that are not the best for us yeah but a lot of the <laughs> students who who like those kind of teachers they they're they were once abused very, very, very much so. And now they're, they're just, they're just reinforcing those pain patterns, unfortunately. This is something I thought about recently, actually, is, you know, I guess, we, I guess some of us might not know when you're ready to teach something, when you have that natural energy to give. Um, but I feel like there has to be some sort of level of understanding of yourself. Yeah, there has to be some sort of level of work you've done to understand yourself, your family, your family's family, that kind of that lineage of trauma that you've kind of gone through growing up and to understand yourself to some level before you can kind of be in a room and potentially holding space for other people to explore that. And I thought that dogmatism could be a place to sort of um avoid that and to think that you kind of let me phrase this better like maybe dogmatism and doing things very kind of strictly and correctly can be a way of you avoiding that yourself you know well a dogmatic system doesn't allow space for questions just like your perpetrator mm. doesn't allow room for questions oh yeah it's a shame actually and i i i, I do sort of wish that uh because I, I think the system is fantastic, you know, the way it's structured and designed and the way the movement patterns are designed, but kind of teaching in that kind of dogmatic, uh, authoritative way, I would like to see that shift, uh, like more of a shift away from that. 100%. I think it's just that's that is up to the individual to make that decision. You know, in my work, I've noticed that most people run codependent and codependents, they just want to people please. So they're just going to do what is needed to, mm. to make, make things work. They're not going to question. Um, they, they follow the rules and they keep their own feelings um, ambiguous because that's where safety is. You know, for me, you know, interestingly, like I, when I, when I started not teaching, but like exercising my capacity to teach. It was in Los Angeles and I was, I, my brother had just died. It was interesting. Mm. And I was, I'd just come back from India 
with liver flukes. And then my brother dies. My body was like a mess for a while. And I had a lot of autoimmune stuff going on. I, cu- I couldn't do my practice and not feel pain. Mm. And I kind of had this moment where, like I said to Maria, the woman who I was, I was going to her class, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm ready to, to assist you. Because she had said, whenever you're ready, mm. you can assist me. And I remember mm. she said, okay, do you, because she had a full room, like she'd have like 35 people every morning. And she said, do you want to just focus on the advanced students. And I said, no. I said, I've never felt Mm. more broken on every level in my life. Mm. I said, I think I can finally relate. I want the beginners. I want the old people. I want the broken people. Because I I finally Mm. know what it's like to relate. I never knew what it was Mm. like before. Because because you were so able. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I guess going through something traumatic like that is going to bring up a lot of different things, yeah? Yeah, and and for me, like, at that time, I remember, like, just doing one sun salutation sometimes was all I could do, and then I would just lay on my mat and cry. Like, I just couldn't mm. even, like, get through it um, for so many reasons, right? Like, my body was kind of just falling apart. My adrenals went that year. I had a lot of mm. issues, and... Yeah, so everything was falling apart, and and finally I was like, oh god, this is probably what it feels like <laughs> humanity to try to practice. Okay, I get it now. Like, whoa, this is tough. But I, at the same time, because I love to learn, it gave me a new way to approach things, and I just I surrendered to it, and and mm. and so then I was like, okay, now it's time. Now it's time for me to actually like start assisting and start working with bodies. Yeah. And you're an empathetic woman, so I guess that's kind of easy for you to see people. Yeah, and I loved it. Like, like I don't get me wrong. If there was, if there was someone who was advanced, like I needed help with Toronto or something, I was happy to help break that down too. But for the most part, I really enjoyed just working with those who had limitations. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think that's what I see mostly in the rooms. Is it's not like you're looking for that, but it's always good when you see people kind of connecting to that side of themselves. And unfortunately, sometimes I see students who I think really they're mostly just getting a workout, you know, that that's the, the side of the practice that they're really getting. And I think that's the side they're probably actually focusing on really is just how to progress through the physical postures. And that maybe, maybe that's really the intention is just to kind of just that. <laughs> you know well and another thing that that became apparent to me because I was afraid to teach even though I was assisting then they wanted me to sub all the time and I was like ah and I was so nervous to sub and I was talking to one of the other um, Ashanga teachers I forgot her name and I mm-hmm. said what if I don't know and she goes you're not your job isn't to know your job mm-hmm. is to show up and be ready to serve they're going to tell you what they need they're going to mm-hmm. tell you what they need it's it's your your job isn't to come full, your job is to come empty and and let them let them show you. Yeah, yeah. This sort of holding space. Yeah, it's funny. I thought about something you said with um, courage, you know, just now. And when I think of being courageous, and actually, I think of my father. Actually, when I think of this, and someone who's not afraid to speak out. I think someone who's courageous is someone who. Um, is able to speak their mind honestly without really kind of worrying about what other people think. And, you know, earlier we kind of talked a little bit about how dogmatism uh, can have a negative effect. I think it can kind of 
uh, affect people in a way where they they don't become very courageous yet because it's difficult to speak out against something or speak out in a way that might be seen to be bad in the community or um, going against the grain. And probably like you, I I grew up like that a little bit in an, in an environment that, uh, like you described as outliers or to be a little bit different. And uh, it's interesting how I've heard some teachers who started to do things differently and teaching a little bit in a different way. And uh, I've heard dogmatic teachers, you know, talk about him in such a negative way. It's sort of like like they've fallen off the path or, you know, there's something wrong with them. You know, they sort of always sort of talked about in such a negative way. And it's almost a bit like cancel culture, you know. Oh, 100%. And like yeah. I was saying, people inherently need to feel okay. They need to feel safe. And so they're going to step inside that box and go, okay, I'm following the rules. I'm okay. I'm safe. Mm. Someone has the courage to live outside those lines. That's a contradiction to their reality. And again, you're not allowed to contradict their reality, mm. but you're wrong. Yeah. And, you know, on a personal level I've my experience of this is being ostracized by my family for the same reason you know you're you're the you're the outlier you're the person that speaks out and is critical of the the psychosis <laughs> and then right. you're ostracized yeah no it's it's and it's baffling to me that that you know i i'm the bad guy like i am the bad guy for not complying with just inherent abuse I'm the best. Like, okay. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but no one is looking at this woman who, you know, like if I, I finally like told her, I said, you taught me to hate myself and I've spent my life undoing that. And that's why you're not welcome in my life is I just, I don't mm. need to do more work. Like, but yeah, I'm, 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 it's, and again, these systems that are set up to just, to just perpetuate that kind of abuse. Stay in line. Don't question. Mm -hmm. You know, when when the the pandemic happened, you really saw who needed to get. Oh my god! You yeah. really saw who needed to play it safe, and yeah, it takes so much courage to be true to yourself. And I just posted this. You know, it's like people will people think power is controlling a narrative. If I can manipulate someone into seeing me a certain way, then that's power. But that's mm. not power. That's just manipulation mm. and control. Power yeah. is being yourself so much so that nothing can be weaponized against you. 100%. Yeah, you're, you're, you have complete integrity in your own sort of, uh, your own boundary, your own space. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I, I wish I would, um, would, would get on to that because that's it's such a liberating place to be yeah i mean i i was sort of i you know i didn't take the the jab with covid and i kind of stood took my own stance on that and you know i had my own views on it and i guess norway wasn't so bad but there was a lot of um i received a lot of a shit for that you know and i got a lot of negative shit for that by sort of sticking to my own sort of principles and values around that and Again, not being dogmatic, I wanted to kind of choose my own sort of road to go down. So I think COVID definitely 
showed a lot of that to me as well. Sure. I mean, if I hadn't already had my own falling out with yoga, COVID would have done it for sure. Mm. Yeah. Really? Why so? What do you mean? It just showed too much about the true nature of people and the fact that like, again, if you're, if you're only doing this practice to get in line and it, it, unfortunately, even people who I was close with when COVID happened, there was, there was a falling out with mm. them even, you know, cause they were just like, mm. you know, how can you support anything other than just stay safe and stay home? And there was a lot of judgment. And mm. I just thought this is too much. Like this is just way and this community yeah. of like it's not even it's for me it's, it's healing and spirituality are the same thing like but to not yeah and and uh and so I, I realized I was like I'm glad I had my falling out when I did and you know I wasn't forced out because of the the fallout with you know the mm. the pandemic yeah I really yeah. really like. I just, I think about even my social media and literally hundreds of people just, okay, we're done. Because the, 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 the shaming that they would do if you were even a little yeah. bit on the other side. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I guess again, it's this dogmatic thinking. Yeah. Mm, not being critical. I think, you know, maybe, maybe something where, there's too much focus on a belief system, yeah? And, you know, there's too much focus on believing rather than being critical. Yeah, people are so afraid to challenge anything. Mm. Yeah, I wasn't brought up like that, you know? I kind of grew up... Uh, I'm from quite a rough part of South London, and my dad and my family... Um, were kind of anti-authoritarian. So I kind of grew up with not really respecting authority and questioning authority from a very young age. So for me, this was sort of always natural. You know, I was kind of always brought up to sort of think for myself and to sort of, I guess where I'm from, people don't trust people so much either. So you're a little bit kind of, <laughs> you're a little bit skeptical anyway. So for me, this is kind of normal. But for the COVID stuff, for me, was just wild. I mean, I, you know, I just... It's, it's still wild now. It's, I'm, I'll talk about it a little bit on this podcast that I'm surprised people aren't talking about it enough, really, because I've, that's a whole other conversation. But, yeah, <laughs> it's great. Yeah, I, I was raised the same to, to question systems. And mm. I was raised to not question my mother. But other than that, I was raised to question everything else. <laughs> I mean, no one. No one in my yeah, family vaccinated. We were all kind of like, "This is, you know." But, yeah. um, I, you know, I my my family also. I come from a long line of entrepreneurs, and on my dad's side, I know everyone. Even my grandfather was because of the corporate nature of things and having to deal with with higher up corporation stuff and just the the seediness of it. You know what I mean? Like you. Yeah. you it's yeah, yeah. things are not what they seem right and and so no. for me my capacity to question really just came from having a mother who 
would appear so pleasant and public, but was so awful behind closed doors. And so that made me just go, wow, mm. is everybody fake? <laughs> and so mm. I took that thinking with me, like, I don't trust anybody for face value. I am definitely going to learn to read mm. between the lines. I'm not going to like listen to what you're saying. I'm going to listen to what your body is saying, because that's where the truth is. And, and that's mm. where I really developed that skill set, obviously. And so, yeah, yeah I, for me, Reading people's mm-hmm. body. For me, nothing. Yeah. Words mean nothing. It's really yeah. your actions and your energy that I'm tuning into. Hmm. It's probably what helped you become a good teacher, seeing people's bodies mm-hmm. in that way, yeah? I think about the same for myself. When I think about when I was young, I always learned body movement easily that way. You know, I was always able to kind of watch something and sort of replicate it and seeing kind of things in that way was sort of easy, sort of probably growing up in a similar way you intuitively get very good at reading that kind of stuff absolutely and the thing is about energy energy first mm. of all it always precedes the the person so like if if, mm. if things aren't congruent you just go with the energy not the person yeah, yeah and then also it. energy doesn't lie mm. right so like i had a falling out recently with a friend of mine who i've known since i was 12 We've gone back and forth over the years, but mm. I recently just told her, I said, I really don't want you in my life. She just would mm. project so much. Um, like, I'm perfect. My life is perfect. Everything I do is perfect. It was so off-putting to be around her. And I mm. constantly felt inferior. And I remember saying mm. to a, a friend of mine who's, who's, you know, a natural type doctor, I said, I you got to maybe look at this. I constantly feel like I'm trying to <clears throat> ground myself against her projections and, and maybe she's triggering something in mm-hmm. me. <clears throat> and in the end, I, I just was like, I don't feel this around anybody else. So I'm going to just assume it's mm-hmm. her and not me because as much as I, I, I don't want to put that on her, every time I'm around her, I feel like a peasant because she just projects so much grandiosity. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, so off-putting. Like I said, I just was, like, exhausted from trying to, like, balance myself around it. Yeah, I think that uh, it's uh, it's good to have less of that in your life. (laughs) 100%. And this is a successful woman. But, like, I have other successful friends. Like, I have one friend who I've known for about eight years now. And, I mean, the man makes seven figures a week. He's obscenely successful, Jesus. and I don't feel like a peasant around him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's a different vibe. But so it yeah. wasn't. It wasn't because mm. she was so successful, like financially. It had nothing to do with that. It was. Her, it was her projections. Mm. Yeah, I think maybe. Um, I think maybe practicing this, this Danga system helped people with that too, like reading energy and seeing people's bodies and kind of feeling things more. I've definitely talked to students who felt that being in a Mysore room helped them understand people's energy in a different way. They kind of saw things more energetically rather than, uh, like you say, from people's words and things like that. Yeah. And that was quite intuitive, actually. I, I think I gave a story on this podcast once about a lady that recently started Mysore and 
it was just something that happened intuitively for her in the Mysore room where she just was able to see boundaries a little bit more in a clearer way. And that wasn't something she learned in therapy or any in, in any other kind of sort of structured way. It was just something that came about intuitively from the Mysore room. Oh, yeah. People's bodies will absolutely shock you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think she just got get got better at practicing that and seeing it, you know, intuitively. Yeah, Paige, this has been super f nice. I've only got like we've got like seven minutes left before this stops. So, but uh, is there is there anything you kind of wanted to to finish with or anything? Like you said, you had a book, right? Yeah, I wrote a book in 2019 called "Leading an Intentional Life." Yeah. And is, uh, is there any, where can people find it? Amazon. You can get on Amazon. Oh, yeah, nice. Any, any plans for future more? Or? Not at this point. I mean, writing a book was quite, is quite an endeavor. If you're going to do it right, mm. it's, a, it's a big deal. I guess that's somewhere to put some energy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought about that, actually, just before we wrap up, but... Because I, you know, I know you spoke about this on the video that you said was around renunciation and giving up an identity. And I guess part of what you're talking about with stopping practicing is a little bit that, isn't it? It's, it's kind of an identity, mm -hmm. yeah? Yeah, people think that they're renouncing. They're not renouncing, they're escaping. They're running away from responsibility, typically. And that's those aren't my words. That actually came from an Indian man. What do you mean? Can you explain We'll, pr we'll practice renunciation prematurely. And they, they do it in the sense like, oh, I'm just going to like give up all of my worldly responsibilities. But it's not, it's not shedding an identity. It's literally just trying to run away from responsibility. Hmm. So how would you describe renunciation in this, like, like truly? It's so totally shedding of ego stuff, just, and, and moving into a different role. And... Hmm. Maybe maybe that's what you're experiencing at the moment. Oh, totally. Like it's, yeah. <laughs> and if it is, it's not comfortable. It's definitely like, like a, yay, we made it. It's like a, oh, God. So. <laughs> It'd be interesting to see where that goes or maybe you might find another practice to, to um, focus some energy, distract yourself. I guess we'll find out. I I will say that I'm happy. I'm happy to admit that like I have extracted all my selfishness out, and I think everyone needs to do that. I think it's really important mm. that you make yourself such a priority, so you can renounce that. Because if you don't take care of you, there's always going to be elements that are undone, and you're never going to be able to truly give or serve. It's always going to be selfish. Mm. And you see this in teachers. Like, I'm teaching to, to, to pat my own ego, right? Like, my students mm. are reflections of me, you know? It's like, well, you're not really teaching then self selflessly. You're doing it selfishly. You're doing it because you want to have certain accolades. And, you know, before you really step into a space of service, I do recommend that you kind of get your own shit out of the way. Otherwise, it's just going to... Uh, backfire at some point yeah I 100% totally agree with that I've totally been in rooms 
where you to- you completely feel that from the teacher. It's completely about them. Even this yeah. idea, and this happens like in the coaching space as well, where it's like, I'm going to create a problem that you don't really have just so that I can give you the mm. solution and be your hero. Yeah, unfortunately, they would definitely meet people Oh, like my that. God. I don't know how many <laughs> teachers, and they'll do this for stupid stuff. They'll pick apart your chaturanga or they'll pick apart your dumb dog mm. just so they can feel yeah. like the savior for giving you the right way. And it's like, you know what? Like, their downward dog is fine. It's fine. Yeah. I, I run a mile with people like that. I'm not drawn to people like that at all. I think generally teachers that I've met who have integrity, who are very good, most of the time they leave exactly. you alone. And they let you do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Paige, we're, we're about to run out of time. So I think we'll just uh, wrap up. This has been really nice. I really appreciate you coming onto the show. And it's been really nice sort of uh, exploring these topics with you. And again, I appreciate you being very candid and open and honest about these topics because some of these things are a little bit difficult to talk about. And some um, some people are not so open about talking about some of this stuff. Well, like I said, I mean, my I, I take full responsibility for myself. But problem. <laughs> yeah. All right. Cool. All right. Thanks, Paige. Yeah. Thanks for having me, and I hope that hope that your listeners get something out of it. I'm sure they will. Thanks very much. All right. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Bye.